Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Hi guys, really good to see you. So I'll go ahead and read um, first from Numbers and then from Isaiah. So Numbers 4, verse 15. After Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, and when the camp is ready to move, only then are the Kohathites to come and do the carrying. But they must not touch the holy things or they will die. The Kohathites are to carry those things that are in the tent of meeting. Great, now we'll go into Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this is touch your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So now we'll go ahead and turn things over to Dustin for the talk. Hey guys, so good to be with you. I'm Dustin, looking forward to preaching to you today and walking through this text. Um, preaching is, is a talk and we engage with the scripture and hear what God says to us and respond to that. And so, so glad that you're here today, that you're moved today and that the scriptures move your affections. So we've been talking about King David and we've looked at David when he was a young boy and went out and fought a giant. We've looked at David as he uh, pursued after Saul and could have killed him but didn't because he trusted in God. We've looked at David as he has grown up and the love that he had for his friend Jonathan and how they uh, came together. But today we're going to be talking about David and his, uh, his interaction with God, David in the presence of God. And this is an interesting text, and so I'm really looking forward to preaching it. Second Samuel chapter 6, we're going to be going through that in a minute. But first, I got to set this up with a couple of things. One, we need to talk about what the Ark of the Covenant is a little bit, and then I want to tell you a little bit of history, and then we'll get into the text. So uh, the Ark of the Covenant uh, looked similar to this, and, um, and so it's just a box, looks like maybe three feet by two feet by two feet, and the Ark of the Covenant actually goes back in Israel's history, back before there were kings, uh, back before there were judges, all the way back to Moses uh, after he had led the children of Israel out of Egypt. 
and God told Moses to build this Ark of the Covenant, and uh, it's this box, and he was to put uh, the Ten Commandments into the Ark. And so uh, inside of it was the Ten Commandments, and then there was a jar that had manna in it, and manna was the bread that fell from heaven that God, fell, God fed the Israelites with when they were um, in the Exodus outside of Egypt. And uh, literally, manna means what is it, which I've always loved. You know, they're gathering this food, and they're like, wow, what is this? And they're like, I don't know. It sounds good to me. Let's call it that. And so they name it, what is it? And so inside of there would have been a jar with that. And then there was Aaron's staff or Aaron's rod, and it had flowered. Uh, it, even though it was, it was the same rod that Aaron used, uh, the staff that he used, and it had flowered, and there was life in it. So that was placed in there as well. But all of those things were just as a memorial, because the real power of the ark was that God chose for his presence to be uh, over or in or around this ark. It represented God's presence on earth. And so the ark had these cherubim there. You can see those angels on top uh, with their wings like that. One of the most amazing parts of the ark was that in the middle of it is what's called the mercy seat. And that's where God's presence was said to dwell. And, and once a year, the Israelites would come in and they would offer sacrifice and the priests would put blood there to represent the sins being cleansed for the people, which we'll talk about that in a little bit. But this is the ark. Uh, I wanted to point out too that uh, you could see these guys carrying it with their royal garments uh, and the posts that go through the rings. That's very important uh, from today's text. You'll see why in a minute. But this was the Ark of the Covenant, and it represents God's presence, his tangible presence on earth. And obviously, God's Holy Spirit uh, was in David and was working in the world as well at that time. Uh, but this is the place that uh, God chose for his tangible presence on earth to be known. And so this is full of power. All right, so uh, that's the Ark of the Covenant. And let me give you some history before we get into the text. Uh, just one chapter back from this, in chapter 5, we see that David is finally a crowned king. Now, he's been anointed king for a while, but he's finally crowned. And uh, right before this chapter, David actually goes out and he fights the Philistines yet again. And he takes them on, and he, um, he actually goes to God, and he says, God, should I fight them or should I not? And God tells him exactly what to do. And David ends up pushing the Philistines back one more time. And David is now in Jerusalem, and he's built some buildings, and he's, he's got now the capital city of Israel established, and this is going to be uh, where the government is, the kingship. This is where the military is going to be, and Jerusalem's going to be a worship center. The worship hub of the, hub of the world at this time is going to be right there in Jerusalem, and in order for that to happen, David is going to go have, have to go and get the ark from where it's been. And so let me tell you where the ark's been. The ark was made by Moses. It kind of kind of goes through a few different place changes in the Old Testament, but ends up in this place called Shiloh. And it's there for nearly 20 years in the times of the judges before the kings of Israel even existed. And the ark is there in Shiloh until the Philistines come in and attack Israel, and they end up capturing the ark of the covenant. And our first point today is that God's presence brings cursing or blessing. When God shows up, there's either cursing or there's blessing. And, and the best way to demonstrate this is when the Philistines 
went and stole the Ark of the Covenant from Israel, knowing that it represented God's power and that Israel would actually go and seek God about how to beat the Philistines at the, the Ark and God would speak, uh, they actually steal that and they take it back to their own land. And it's this brilliant story. This is about 20 years back from where we'll be today. I know it's a lot of dates and places, but stay with me. So they take the Ark of the Covenant, they put it in a tent, and, uh, and a tent that houses their idol, Dagon, D-A-G-O-N, Dagon. And Dagon is there, and they, they set up the Ark, and they feel so proud of themselves, and they're going to get, uh, they feel like, you know, oh, we've captured this thing that represents God's presence. And so they kind of do their worship thing. They go to bed, and then very next morning, Dagon is falling down on his face right in front of the Ark. As if God's saying, what in the world? There is nobody like me. I am God. This is not a God. Well, the Philistines, they don't get it. They're like, wow, that's weird. And they go and they take Dagon. They push him back up. Which, by the way, if you have to set up your God again, that might be a sign that he's not a great God if you're doing that. But they set up Dagon and they're like, all right. And they do their worship thing. They go to bed. The next day they come in and Dagon again is falling flat in front of the ark, and, uh, but this time he's been decapitated and his hands have been chopped off and they're by the, the door and they walk in and they see, um, and they're like, wow, okay, so God is powerful and they recognize that God's presence is there, but they still keep the ark. They're like, well, we're gonna use God's presence the way we wanna use God. We're gonna put him with the idol. We're gonna, but here's what God does. For the next seven months, it's just absolute misery for the Philistines. They have plagues. They have, they're just cursed for seven months. And finally, they're like, look, God is not for us because they're trying to use God's presence for their own glory, for their own idols, for their own thing. They're not really worshiping God. And so God is like, no, you cannot use my presence. And so they experience this kind of uh, cursing that takes place for seven months. Finally, they decide to get rid of it. And so they take the ark and they put it on a new cart and they, that they've made for it. And they hook it up to some oxen. They slap the oxen. They're like, just go back to Israel. And the oxen goes down and stops in front of the house uh, in Kirith Jerem, where, uh, where there was somebody from the, the tribe and the lineage of uh, Levi, which would have been the priest. And he takes the ark and he keeps it at his house. And so it's been at his house for nearly 20 years, except for maybe once or twice it gets taken out by Saul. But mostly it's been there at that place for 20 years. And so uh, that's where we enter into the text. David's going to go up to this place and he's going to get the ark and bring it back to Jerusalem to establish this to be the worship hub of the world. And so let's read. 6.1 says this, David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bela of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. The scripture wants to be very clear here. This is the name of the Lord Almighty. This is God. And they're going to bring him into Jerusalem. So then they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. 
And Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and with harps and lyres and tambourines and sistrums and cymbals. So you get this picture. David has 30,000 men and they march to Abinadab's house and they load this ark up on the cart. And they're so, so excited to bring this back to Jerusalem. And there's worship and there's excitement and there's, um, you just imagine the energy that must have been there. But we just read a little bit ago in Numbers 4 that God said, when you move the ark, you make sure that you carry the ark, uh, that priests carry the ark between them. In fact, he even, he even knows which uh, lineage of the priest he wants to carry the ark, right? And so uh, they don't pay attention to any of that. They're so eager to get the ark and bring it back to Jerusalem that they just put it on an ark and they're just going along and you can imagine like if you can imagine a parade of 30,000 people and just shouting and this excitement and this energy that's happening and then verse 6 when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark because the oxen stumbled and then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Whew. So they, they're bringing the ark up. You can imagine the 30,000 men, the worship that's taking place, the excitement that's taking place. Suddenly, in this moment, you can imagine in slow motion, the, the ark begins to tip, the oxen stumbles, and Uzzah, who's next to it, reaches out his hand, and when he touches that, God kills him. The scriptures tell us that, that God is so righteous that, um, that sin cannot be in his presence, that he does not allow for that. In fact, uh, there's this part in the Old Testament uh, where, uh, by the way, this is our next slide, God's presence shall be taken seriously by, by us. Look at this. So uh, God's presence should be taken seriously. And here's why. God is holy. He's God. He's the creator of all things. He is all Powerful. I know we say these words and we've heard them if you've been in the church at all, but think about this. He's all powerful. Every bit of power that's in the world, God has allowed, but it's his power. He owns it. It's his. He allows for there to be power and government. One day he's coming back and all that power is coming back to him. God is the God of uh, the universe outside of time and space. Um, he's the God that is omnipresent but also very present with us uh, as well in, in tangible ways. Um, God is, uh, he's this big, amazing God. We read in Isaiah that the robe of, or that his robe fills the entire temple courts. And we got a picture of what God looked like sitting up on his throne, the robe filling the temple courts, the angels worshiping day and night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They, they say it over and over and over, and there's this worship that's happening. And when they sing, the very courts of the temple in heaven is shaking with their voices and with the voice of God. You can imagine this powerful God. And now what's just happened is the Israelites have not listened to how God said to do this. They've got the uh, good intentions and they have a right idea, but God has 
has said to them, look, when you're doing this, you do it in this way. And that brings me the most glory when you honor me in that. And it's good for you. Don't mess with my presence. God is to be taken seriously. There's this, uh, this story where Moses wants to see God one time. And, and God said, no, you can't see me because if you see me, you'll die. And so uh, Moses says to God, well, how about I just hide in a rock and then you pass by and I'll just see a bit of you. I'll catch a glimpse. And, uh, and so God, in his holiness, comes by and Moses, I kid you not, it says that his hair, all of it turned white and his face shined like the sun so much that when he came back and people saw him, they had to cover their face when he was with him. And so, uh, and so God is holy. And, and when we worship God, when we think about God, it matters that we think about God rightly. The scriptures tell us in 1 John uh, that God is seeking those who worship God in spirit and in truth. We have to have both. It's not enough that we do what we want. God has a way for us to honor him and glorify him and worship him. Uh, and that's for our good and for his glory. And they didn't do that here. And so we see Uzzah paying the cost. And can you imagine the silence that must have fell over the crowd? All the tambourines stop. All of the singing stops. Everything just goes silent when this man dies. And then you can imagine David there and his response as the king who's supposed to be leading this procession rightly. Here's what it says, verse 8. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah, or broken out against Uzzah. So David's angry. Now, we don't know if David's angry uh, at God or angry with himself or angry with the priest. We don't know where that anger is directed. We just know that David is angry. And one of the things that is really important to know about us and our relationship with God is our emotions don't scare God. And I, I know, but sometimes we want to hide like how we're feeling from God. And that's just not what we see, especially with King David. And we've been looking at him. When you go to, to the Psalms, many of them were written by David. He's a man full of emotions, anger and joy and passion, sorrow and sadness, brokenness. And so David is angry here. And, and, and so he, uh, he is, is very frustrated. So here's what he does. Verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? How can it ever get to Jerusalem? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. That was our first point. God's presence can either bring cursing or it can bring blessing. And so when God's will and, and the way we worship and the way we approach God is done the way that God says, there's blessing in that. And Obed-Edom uh, gets to experience the blessing of God in his whole household for three months. You could probably predict what's going to happen next. Verse 12. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. 
So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Okay, so part two. We've tried to move the ark. We did it our way the first time. We put it on a cart. We moved it uh, as far as we could before uh, God broke out against us. And now we're going to go back. We're going to bring it the rest of the way because we know that God's presence matters and we take it seriously and we want it with us. And we know that when we are right with God and right relationship with him, blessing comes out of that. And so David decides to go back. Um, there's a, in, in first Chronicles 15, it actually has the same story. And uh, here's the difference. You know, the first time David does it according to the cards and what the Philistines had done and not according to the scriptures. But here's what it says in First Chronicles 15. It says, after David had constructed buildings for himself in the city of David, he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, listen to this, no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God because the Lord chose them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. So somewhere in these three months, David remembers the text. Maybe the priests come to him. They say, oh, we messed this up. Um, and we are, we're wrong in this. And so uh, now they're going back and the Levites are going to carry it the way that picture showed, the way that they're supposed to bring it in. Verse 13, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. Okay, so part two, that all of Israel's gathered. David is doing it right this time. The priests are carrying it. David stops after six steps, and he does some sacrifice to God. This is no longer about, let's bring the ark in so for me, and so that I can be glorious and have God's presence in the city. But now this is shifted to, this is about God. It's not about David. In fact, David is stripped down out of his kingly robes in what's called an ephod, which would have been kind of the undergarments of the priest. Now, um, I've heard people preach this and they say, wow, David is dancing before God in his underwear. And that's kind of true, but not fully true. He wasn't immodest, but he was dressed down. For a king, this would have seemed completely out of place. And he's dancing with all the people. There's no separation. He's rejoicing with them. And he, the scriptures tell us he's dancing and worshiping with all of his might with them. And they're shouting and there's trumpets and there's rejoicing and they're doing it right this time. In verse 16, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. And we're going we're gonna to stop there today, but here's what happens. So David comes in dancing uh, before God with all of his might. Michal is uh, actually given to him from Saul when he defeated Goliath, I believe, and she has become his wife. Now she's looking out from her window, and she sees uh, David down there dancing, and she's humiliated by the fact that a king would be doing uh, this kind of, like being amongst the people and dancing the way he's dancing. And so she gets really frustrated in her heart and despises him. 
and she's actually going to confront him in a brilliant, sarcastic way. And David's going to come back with, look, you are completely wrong in this. I would do even, even more to humble myself because God is God is basically what he says to her. And you can read that um, later in your own time to finish out the chapter. But here's what we need to talk about. What do we do with this tension of broken, sinful us and God's holy presence? You know, we see this picture of um, God's presence breaking out against a, a sinful man who had done something wrong. Uzzah, um, even though David had made that choice and the, the, all of Israel were with him in that, um, can you imagine what would have happened if that ark would have tumbled out? I just imagine it would have wiped everybody out in a second. And there's, there's an amazing tie here, I believe, to Jesus. You see, Jesus, he went in to God's presence with our sin. And because he did that and faced the wrath and the penalty of our sin and took that penalty upon himself, that sin and, and that destruction that should be ours was given to him, was taken by him so that we might be free to go into the presence of God. God's presence brings cursing or blessing. And Jesus took the curse that we deserve so that we might have the blessing of God's presence. God's presence is to be taken seriously. And Jesus takes the curse for us and gives us the blessing of God's presence. In fact, the scriptures tell us, like, what do we do with this tension? The scriptures tell us this in Hebrews, that Jesus, that because Jesus died, because of the blood that was shed, we can enter into God's presence with confidence. Now, here's the real tragedy for us. I think sometimes it's easy to become too familiar with God. We know him as father. We know him as friend. But sometimes we miss that God is God. I want to read a quote to you. There's a story in the C.S. Lewis Chronicles and Narnia books. Um, and there's this quote I, I've taken out uh, from the silver chair. And there's this girl who's approaching Aslan. And Aslan is sitting beside this water. And Jill, the girl, is coming to get a drink from the water. But she sees Aslan sitting there. And she has a conversation with him. And basically, she's, she's terrified to go up to this water. And the lion is sitting there, Aslan, the, rep, you know, the lion sitting there representing God. And Jill trying to get water. And they're having this conversation. And in the conversation, she says, well, well, maybe I should go and find another source to drink from. And Aslan says, there is no other source. This is the only source. And she's trying to debate, like, how do I get a drink without actually coming close to the lion. And she asked him at one point, she says, well, are you safe? And she, Aslan responds with this. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor if it was, as if it were angry. It just said it. God is God. He's powerful. He's enthroned in heaven. He made everything that we have. And we can become too familiar and forget that God is God. And when we do that, we are tempted to worship him in ways that, that aren't appropriate. 
namely in ways where we try to earn God's favor, where we try to do things well so that God might love us when the reality is that God already loves us and he sent his son to die for us. And now Jesus has accomplished the work on our behalf so that we might enter in with full worship. The scriptures uh, in Revelation, they talk about God again. And actually there's this moment, this scene in Revelation, I think it's four and five, where um, Jesus, the lamb is there. And there's these 24 elders who are, have thrones around the lamb. And he's standing there. And the elders get down and they take their crowns off and they place them before the lamb. And the scriptures tell us that angels are worshiping and all of heaven is worshiping. They are repeating um, all power and glory be unto your name. You are worthy. You are worthy of our praise and worship. All power and glory be unto your name. And they place the crowns down before him and they bow down. And um, the scriptures tell us that one day all of creation will bow down rightly before the king that we revere. But here's, here's what we have now as people who follow Jesus. It's an invitation to worship God with all of our might. The scriptures tell us to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and might, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And the scriptures invite us to worship God rightly in our marriage, in our singleness, with our money, and how we see government, and what we watch, and the entertainment that we have, that we can actually become people when we have a right picture of God, who worship God with all of our might in all of those areas, and that becomes a beautiful thing. May we catch a glimpse of Jesus this way, that we might worship God with all of our might. And so let me pray, and uh, we're gonna sing a song about this. And I just want you, as we sing this next song, I want you to, uh, to realize that this song is based off of the scriptures, that right now in heaven, there is worship happening to God with the angels and, and those that are there in heaven, worshiping God both day and night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You are worthy. You are worthy of all of our praise. And so uh, let me pray, and then let's sing this together, and we'll be joining with that song in the heavens, and God will hear that, and it'll glorify him. And may we become a people that worship God, not just uh, on Sundays with all of our might and, and song, but may we worship God in the way that we act, in the way that we love, and the way that we live our lives, full lives of worship. Father God, God, I am so very grateful that you love us, and that though you are all-powerful, that you have invited us in because of your great love for us, and that you made a way through your Son, Jesus Christ, who died the death that we deserve, even though he was perfect, and that took the penalty that was due us, taking that upon himself, the curse, that we might receive the blessing to be in your presence forever. The very fact that now we're cleansed and your Holy Spirit dwells inside of us, that we don't have to go to Jerusalem, that the presence doesn't dwell with an ark, but that your presence is with us, that even when we're digitally uh, worshiping you, that we are worshiping you as people who are filled with your presence, God. Thank you so much that you have made a way for us, that we don't have to be afraid, that we can enter in with confidence because of the blood of Christ. God, thank you. May we 
rest in your presence. May we be a people that so are in love with you that we are changed and transformed from one degree of glory as another, as the scripture says, as we behold the face of Christ. May we become more and more like you and may our lives be lived and worship fully to you. God, thank you that you made a way. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.